This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello and welcome to this um, very special um, session of the Upskill series, um, which is um, writing documentary, shaping story. Um, Before we begin, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners um, of the land where we meet and have our conference, the uh, Bunmurong and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and we pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging. so we're really um, lucky today to have Jen Pedem um, in conversation with Joseph Nazetti. Um, they'll be talking about the, the craft of writing. I think um, Jen probably doesn't need an introduction given by how many people are here. So it's really exciting to see so many people here at this sort of 5.30 session. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Joseph because I think there's um, a lot of stuff to cover and... If there's time at the end for um, burning questions, apparently there's going to be um, some roving mics so you can ask, but I'll leave it up to Joseph and Jen to facilitate that. So um, can you please join me in welcoming Joseph and Jen? Thank you, Thank you very much. Just a few little thoughts before we dive um, straight in. While this discussion is framed around the topic of what it means to write a feature documentary, you'll learn or hear rather quickly that it becomes a reasonably holistic discussion around our company's approach to filmmaking, A Stranger Than Fiction. By consulting on other producers' films and by turning the process we're about to describe inwards on our own drama and factual productions, our thinking about story and writing has become so enmeshed that it's sort of impossible to pull them apart at this point. Jen and I are both inspired by the collaborative, creative story approach of filmmakers like Pixar, So we won't just be talking about finding your story and putting pen to paper to devise the best version of that story. We'll be discussing creativity and artistic leadership more broadly within the context of collaborative filmmaking in the feature documentary space. One last thought before uh, Jen jumps in. Our process is about putting vocabulary to instincts. It's definitely not about constraining those instincts. It's about amplifying our tastes for character-driven emotional drama stories and positioning our factual projects to move us in the very same way. Thanks so much for coming, everyone. I'm amazed that there's so many of you and it's happy hour, so we're really flattered. (laughs) And this is really kind of just Joseph and I talking about our process that we've kind of arrived at over a number of years, and and John Smith, and you're in the audience somewhere. I've learned everything I know from you, and... um, and, and a lot of the other filmmakers that I've worked with. So this is just trying to actually put down in some kind of um, logical order sort of what is our writing process and to explore that and, and hopefully there'll be some tools and tips and some ideas that might help you along your way. Yeah, brilliant. So we, it's, it's, we want to talk to... What, what we realise when we're putting this thing together is that it is as much for producers... Um, as directors and then writers, whatever that actually means in this in this space of documentary, which is something that we'll hopefully arrive at by the end. What does it actually mean to write a documentary? And if we if we haven't really answered that for you at the end, please do jump in with more questions about more specifics because it is a very kind of unusual thing in documentary. Hmm. So in the course of this discussion, we will get to 
the meat of it, which is really breaking down our process. And our process is really just a toolbox, a set of questions that we keep asking ourselves throughout the course of working on any given project. They're themes and structures that we apply to our own work, which we find tremendously useful. And depending on which project we're working with and who we're collaborating with, some are more useful than others. Um, probably one of the highlights of or the, the things that I always come back to is that documentaries are movies too. Um, I'm working on a new project at the moment called Democracy for Sale with a bunch of people who aren't actually traditional documentary filmmakers and they're always saying, well, in our documentary... And I keep saying, can we stop calling it that? We're making a movie here. And I, I do really always think about whatever project it is as a movie. And I think the reason I like that word better than film even is that it's just, it is about moving people. How do you find a structure and a way into a story that is emotionally moving in whatever way? So I think that kind of idea is at the heart of um, our approach. Yeah, I mean, we'll be spending a lot of time talking about characters, characterization, and journeys um, in the course of talking about writing documentary film. And that's because documentaries, at least the documentaries that we really love and want to tell people about and want to make, are the ones that pull the emotions of the audience in the same way that a drama feature does. And there's a lot to learn from fiction, and there's a lot of time that we spend thinking about drama films. So... Um one of the things I've really learnt, um, and I probably learnt this from John Smithson, is there's a really big difference between a one-hour film. I, my career began really making one-hour films and then feature documentaries. Um, and I think, um, you know, you need to take your the level of storytelling to a, to a whole other level um, and a lot of detail and more deeper thematics and bigger ideas. So we'll talk a little bit to that too. Yeah. So to sort of bust open the bigger question that we'll get to our process from, what does it actually mean to write a documentary? And we'll get to this sort of further on with the, the toolbox, but maybe the first question that we get when we talk to people about this idea is, how can you know? How can you know what's going to happen, especially if you're working on a documentary which hasn't unfolded yet? Yeah, often when we're writing with people and, um, you know, I've been teaching at the film school or, or on the projects that we're, we're helping out on, people say, well, I can't write a treatment because I don't know what's going to happen yet. And the answer is you can't know, but you can prepare as much as possible. And the way that we prepare is by asking ourselves a whole lot of questions. Um, and probably that's a good point to go to this next slide because really the biggest question is what kind of movie are we making? And what we thought we'd sort of... Because the, the actual process of writing is totally different um, and, and it, it applies differently depending on where you sit on this scale. And we've just sort of picked a random bunch of films here, some that we love, some that um, we've made, some that we've worked on um, as a way of demonstrating a kind of spectrum from that true observational style where the writing process is quite different to the fully constructed um, style. So we might just play the... The For Summer trailer. So, Alex, the we first, the first clip. We're not going to show all these clips. We're just going to show two. Bihalab. Madinti. Hamza. 
كيف رح تتغير حياتنا للابد؟ حمزه انا حامل سما 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 عملت هالفيلم مشانك بدي اياك تفهم شو اللي كنا عم نقاتل مشانه سما انا بعرف انك عم تفهم شو عم بصير بقدر شوف هالشي بعيونك ما عم تبكي مثل اي طفل عادي هذا الشيء اللي عم يحرق قلبي سامحيني The reason we chose that clip is, um, A, because it's a great film, but B, it's such a great example of, of a true observational film but also a highly written film. It almost becomes an essay film. Um, and, of course, that essay and that personal first-person narrative was not written until, you know, after the film had been shot um, mm. in the edit suite with another director and, and it was truly written. Yeah, so th- with the full spectrum of these films, the sort of point that we're going to get to through talking about how each of them lives and moves up on the screen as a finished film is that the same kind of storytelling techniques ultimately apply. They're rich, detailed stories about characters on journeys. And that's ultimately what we're trying to arrive at with any of the productions that we're working on. So when, often when we start a project, um, we we before you can really write a treatment, I think, um, you really need to be able to say what the movie is and we often then pull back and try and think of... Um, drama movies that are the, the same example. So so for Sama is obviously a war movie um, and a comp that we would use for that would be The Pianist. Um, structurally, that could be a good way to look into the film. Um, Biggest Little Farm is what Joseph likes to call a building the business film. Um, again, a highly written film, truly observational, but then highly written in the edit. Um, and, and a comp for that, a, a great example of a building a business film is... Is, is Ghostbusters, which is a movie that I love. And um, <laughs> it might be a strange sort of thing to comp straight away, the idea of a building a business film like The Social Network or, or Ghostbusters applying to a documentary like Biggest Little Farm. But for us, the reason I think why these comps are so effective is that you can see kind of in a blink how your characters in that situation might go on a journey and the kind of emotional beats they might hit, the kind of choices they could make the kind of turning points they might arrive at in the course of the film. And, and, and also just a loose clue to what your three-act structure might be. So if you're choosing the right kind of frame for your movie right up front, um, Free Solo we talk about as an addiction story, um, and a comp for that might be a, a movie like Beautiful Boy. 
um, Sherpa began as as a um, probably triumph over adversity story in some ways, and it became became a workers' rights dispute movie, um, like on the waterfront, um, and they were closed to the structure of that film there. Um, Stale Sandwich, beautiful Samantha Lang's beautiful film, um, was also building the business kind of film um, and but it could be comp to something like the founder of the film about the the guy that started McDonald's with what's his name in it uh, Michael Keaton thank you mm. um, Martha um, a film that I was an EP on that Joseph also um, worked on um, is it is really a legacy film um, and and a great comp that we used in that was um, walk the line mm. um, and I know these things sound strange but it helps us think about the film is a movie, not yeah. as a documentary. Um, and that's – so for me, just the point I think I'm trying to make here is that structure is the first element of writing a documentary. You know, what kind of movie is it um, and, and the clues for the, the structure, which just gives you a starting point because it's impossible to start at the beginning and just keep writing till you get to the end. Mm. And, and what kind of emotions might the story ultimately get you to? To dig a bit deeper into something like Martha, if we comp it to the Johnny Cash film, they're both stories about artists with a particular set of tastes and skills at a certain time who ignite when they hit an opportunity. In the case of Johnny Cash, that was a particular musical style and this particular body of stories he'd gotten through his experience in the war as a soldier. In the case of Martha, it's about her curiosity in underground culture and her experiences as a photographer and this moment of graffiti in 70s New York City. And from there, it's the birth of an artist and it's the birth of somebody who not only captures a moment in history in such an amazing way, but through her work finds a way to give back to that very community and ultimately inspires generations of creatives in that same space. Um, then, you know, right down the far end of the spectrum, I remember seeing The Corporation for the first time as a young filmmaker. It really kind of blew my mind, and it's, I think, the reason that it works so well is that it, it is an issue film, if you like, but it very cleverly made um, a character out of the um, the corporation itself and that then meant that you were following a character on a journey which is often the problem I see when um, you know I'm teaching at film school or something you see a lot of issue films that you don't you're often trying to urge people to find characters and in a film like Mountain that, that I directed that was actually brought to me and commissioned by the Australian Chamber Orchestra of all people of all organisations it was a real challenge to find the character in that because um, really it was about personifying the mountains and the mountains became the characters. And that's a real example of an entirely cinematic essay film and it's the first time I'd done anything like that. We can... Should we show the clip for that? Thank you. 
to those who are enthralled by mountains. Their wonder is beyond all dispute. To those who are not, their allure is a kind of madness. should add in that film, I mean, in some ways, Richard Chongyeti, who was um, the artistic director of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, is also in some ways a writer on that film because it was um, s- music played such an important role. But just listening to that, now I'm reminded of the fact that, and this is an important distinction in writing the documentary because many of us work on films with narration, this is a narrated film and I did not, not, I did not write the narration. So the um, amazing British writer Robert McFarlane um, was the narration writer and in our credits and we've just been discussing them because we're about to embark on a new project um, he is the narration script writer I am the writer of the movie so um, and we're both very happy in those roles I couldn't do his he probably well he probably could do my role but um, it is a really important distinction and I think it speaks to what writing a documentary is as opposed to writing narration and writing narration is not writing a documentary so, yeah, next clips. Yeah, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of the steps in our process, we sort of wanted to highlight a few themes or ideas that, um, that tie these questions together that we end up asking ourselves. And the first of these is what Jen likes to call telescoping. Or you like to call it telescoping. <laughs> but we both like to call it telescoping, and it is this idea that... Um, I think one of the hardest things for a director to do when you are in the reads of of the edit, and I've been there myself, um, and I I really have learnt this lesson the hard way, that you need to find ways to pull yourself out and you need producers who can grab you by the hair and wrench you out and find ways of looking at your movie in um, from a 40,000-foot view um, and going back to the whiteboard at different stages to just to interrogate whether or not you are telling the the right version of the story um, and and so a lot of our processes actually we've realised in going through this um, is that they are about finding ways to help you pull back at various stages in the process to check the bigger picture because it all comes back to are you telling a satisfying three-act structure and if you spend all of your time in the reads you, you're never going to get there. Mm. And we'll get into this a little more later but most of our techniques around this idea of telescoping involve collaboration it's not the sort of thing that's actually easy at all to do alone. Yep. Um, the biggest part of, um, of this is, is finding, is there a clear journey? You know, really with a strong beginning, middle and an end. Um, and the other big key idea here is, is transformation. You know, if you don't have particularly your main characters going through some kind of um, transformation by the end... Um, then you maybe don't have a story. Am mm. I on the right slide? Uh, yeah, still. Um, so the, uh, the sort of second hallmark of our process is this idea of constant questioning. 
um, at all stages of the process. It's pretty easy to get in your own head when you're months, years into working on something. Um, but again, inspired by the kind of workflow that companies like Pixar put towards their products, we're actually really eager to find ourselves wrong and, and, and ready to learn something quite surprising and new. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and then the last step, which will come out through these steps that we're talking about, is the idea of inviting and managing feedback. This is especially important during the editorial and post-production phase, phase of a project, but it can start a lot earlier than that. And again, it comes back to this idea of collaborating and working really tightly as a team. Yeah, and this is really, I think, also to the producers in the room um, as a way of getting really being invited into the creative process. So it's not just sending your editor and your director off into a room to kind of... Um, make the film and pop out the other end with something fantastic. It's I really do think it needs to be a collaborative effort and um, and inviting people other in, into that that process to get the best out of the work. All right, so let's get into it. The first question we ask ourselves is: Is this a feature documentary? Yeah, and um, and the most common pitfall that you um, see really in the, in a lot of the work that we do in consulting or or in with our own projects is. Yeah, it might be an issue, but it's not yet a story. Hmm. Um, and so that's that thing of, of um, well, we'll get to characters, but really, hmm. you know, is there a clear journey that we're going to go on here? Yeah. And to take an example of something like For Sama, if you were just given the brief of making a documentary film about the Syrian civil war, it's quite an overwhelming proposition. Actually having a character as a way in, having a story there with a beginning, middle and end that you can at least start thinking about can actually be a great way to make a theme or an issue that you want to explore much more manageable. Yeah. Um, we're often looking for, you know, is it, does it have, um, is it cinematic? And by cinematic, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, epic visuals, although I do love them. Um, it is, does it carry emotional weight and, and sophistication? Um, and ultimately, often when you get the note in a movie that it's not, in the edit, that it's not cinematic enough, often what that means is that it is not yet emotional enough. It's not moving um, enough. Um, so it's not necessarily just going off and getting some big aerials or anything like that. It may not fix your problem. Mm. Uh, the, sort of straight off the back of this is this extra layer, which is what's the vision and who's the audience for this film? What is there that you really want to say about the world or about this issue? And how are you going to tell it to an audience in a way that's moving and interesting? Yeah, just jumping back one step, it's one of the things that that will always happen in the first conversation when we're talking about a film is what what are the the broader universal themes because we're interested in making films that ideally reach beyond... We don't make them for ourselves and that um, that they speak to a broader audience and by broader we mean ideally international in, in the work that we're doing. Um, so that's one of those things you've got to really sit down and ask yourself, what are the bigger themes here? Because if you don't know what they are, um, then you know, you're probably not, not going to get past the, the funding body stage mm. and get finance. Um, character, um, really, I mean, this is just totally essential. Mm. Um, so identifying your key character or key characters, um, what their motivations are, and this is absolutely where we start to pull out the whiteboard um, what is their want, what is their wound, um, and what are the obstacles that they are going to face. And in a doco where you don't know what the outcome is going to be, what are the possible ways that this character may transform on this journey? How are they going to be different? 
at the end of the movie and be able to say and do and be things that they could not be at the start. And on a movie like Sherpa, I could not know that, but I knew that I could not leave the mountain until I had the answer to that question. And so just knowing that that's where you need to get to, it's really useful to have that in mind. And so you can write the treatment, and of course the treatment goes out the window um, a lot of the time, but if you're honed and your brain is honed in that process in that way, then you can find ways of quickly rewriting that treatment and asking yourself the right questions. Yeah, and um, almost immediately as part of this process, we sort of stop thinking about the people that we've identified who might help carry the story of the film as people and start thinking about them as characters. Because that's all the audience is going to see when they meet these people for the first time on screen. And we want them ultimately to live within a frame through the whole movie where they can live and breathe and move just like our favourite characters from drama. Yep. And, and that might seem a little strange, but it's part of that thing about thinking of the, the documentary as a movie, um, which mm. we find really helpful. And then you keep going back to these cinema comps. Yeah. Um, and we find it's actually important to not just identify which characters you might follow in your story, but to keep breaking and re-breaking what their bigger arc for the story is. There's a technique that we apply when we're first sort of trying to break the three-act structure for a character, how they might be our way into an issue, which is looking at this idea of um, something I learned actually when I was in primary school when we were asked to do recounts after a weekend to explain you know, what we'd done on our Sunday. And it was somebody wanted, but so then... Somebody, your character in the film, what do they want? Some goal, but an obstacle, so they react, then you have an outcome. And we use techniques like this and we have them up on the board and we'll verbally pitch them back and forward to each other till we get to the point where we can have a yarn about the character. We can really feel their psychology. We can really feel like they're making active choices in a documentary. It's sort of very screenwritery territory. We really think of it in exactly the same way as, I suppose, a fictional screenwriter might. Yeah, and and I, when I get stuck, because you do, you just you you know, we do all of this stuff, and then we get lost as well. And it's, and these are tools that you can help to pull yourself back out again. And I'm also working across um, a couple of drama projects, and we do exactly the same thing. There's mm. no difference in the process at all. And that so what Joseph uh, calls as somebody wanted, but so then. We've just gone through that process in trying to find the right structure on a drama project and um, I find it really useful when you get stuck. Yeah, I've also found it incredibly useful on a couple of projects where I've worked as a story consultant where the director is the hero character of the film. Um, very understandably, it can be difficult to sort of psychologise yourself or think about how you might be a character that lives or breathes on screen. So getting it out there and saying somebody wanted but so then and talking about yourself and your actions through time is actually incredibly helpful. And in a sense, it sort of demystifies how you'll come across to other people in a way. And it'll make sure that you're looking at an active character on screen rather than somebody who merely has things happen to them or merely does things without you really understanding the motivation and the links in the chain of action and reaction. Um, I mean, one of the things that, and I'm always getting in trouble about this with the drama writer I'm currently working on because I do get bogged down, in fact, being a documentary filmmaker, but... Um, what what that kind of helps you do is separate um, yourself from, you know, oh, no, but it didn't actually happen in that order, so we have to tell it in the exact order that it happened. Mm. I would argue, no, you don't. Um, you actually have to find 
what happened and then put it in the order that best actually tells the essence of the story that you're trying to tell. And, and so you're constantly part of the writing in documentaries is playing with that timeline um, and figuring out what to put where, and that is part of the writing process in documentary. Mm. So, so comps. Yeah, sort of one of our favourite things working on films is it's almost like a game we play at this point, figuring out the most interesting comps uh, to drama films and to other documentaries that we can without in development stories. Yeah, so what kind of movie we are in, um, which is what we did a tiny bit at the start, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll give a useful example that I just remember it was like a light bulb moment and suddenly I knew where to go on this particular project. I was developing a, a feature doc about George Pell that for a bunch of reasons I didn't end up making. But um, when we're in the development process, what we realised is that we were making a downfall film and when we realised, um, when we, we imagined George Pell as Michael Corleone from The Godfather, suddenly the whole thing unlocked. Um, and if you look at, at him as, you know, beginning the movie and he never wants to become part of this family, he never wants to be like his family, and at the end he is the worst of all of them. He's the head of the family and he's the worst of all of them. And suddenly you, mm. there's a, an amazing transformation and... and for us, it was a great way of, of applying that story structure to um, our our real-life character. Yeah, and, and also conveniently for us in that case, the comp explored the very same thesis we were trying to explore with this idea of, with George Pell, nature versus nurture. How much was the sort of evil that we now know um, lives within him uh, a result of something that was inherent to his character and how much was it sort of nurtured by the institution of the church. And the very same question you can apply to Michael Corleone and his journey and The Godfather. Yep, so that's just one. And often we will change comps 50 million times during that process mm. and um, you find different comps for different reasons. Um, with another project I'm doing, a, a sort of a biopic about Tenzing Norgay, actually one of the first comps that we found really useful in just helping find the right structure for the film was um, an animated film called Moana, um, strangely, so it's obviously not a stylistic reference, but it was actually a really perfect structural reference. Um, and then along the way in that movie, Tenzing Norgay is the first person that climbed Everest. Um, for those who don't know, um, we've also used Apollo 13 um, as a great comp and most recently Rocky. Um, and so they're just sort of, again, they're tools to think about where you want your character to be when and, and what kind of movie that you're in. Mm. Um, and actually the moment, at, at one point, I was thinking about the movie is out of Africa and I just wasn't getting anywhere. So when I switched it to Rocky, it suddenly came alive. So mm. it's a good, good example. Um, do you want to talk about characterization? Sure. Um, this is sort of... I mean, again, we can kind of keep talking about how comps here relate to characterization, but imagining the heroes of your film as the heroes of other films can just open up very surprising things and um, in some ways even sort of help predict the future. There was, I can talk about the, um, uh, the, the surf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mick Fanning. <laughs> I'm not into surfing at all. Um, we, we were briefly working on a film about uh, Mick Fanning, the surfer, and it's an interesting film because his, his career is very storied, but he's coming up to the point where he's probably going to be potentially retiring in a couple of years, and he's also just started up a new, uh, a new relationship, uh, which is a big part of his life. And um, over one of the weekends in between us working on this film, I saw Toy Story 4, 
and it occurred to me that uh, Mick Fanning is Woody in that film. <laughs> it's about somebody with a very storied career. In the case of Woody, it's the journey we see him go on in Toy Story 1, 2, and 3, whose life has been defined by an obsession. In the case of Woody, it's been his job to serve Andy and to take care of all the toys. But in Toy Story 4, he's challenged to hang up his hat with dignity. And what does that look like? For him, it's a love interest colliding with his life. Um, and the idea that he actually can set aside his old trajectory and find meaning in something very new and different that he'd actually been putting off was 100% relevant to McFanning. And um, we just quickly mapped out the whole film as if he was Woody and went, <laughs> yeah, it works. This is our three-act structure. Um, and it sounds ridiculous, I know, but it, 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 it's that first part of just nailing your structure because once yeah. you've got your structure, then you can put your meat on your bones. Yeah. And it just helps speed up that writing process because we all know how hard it is to find ways of, of talking about our films when, you know, when we're writing treatments and yeah. at every step along the way. Yeah. And since we've worked on the project, he's gotten engaged, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so structure and frame. So obviously one of the big things that you need to figure out is, is you know, what is the chronological structure of the film? What's the in point and the out point? Um, these days, you know, cradle to grave doesn't really work. I think um, those days are over. Um, and, you know, what are the turning points and climaxes of your story? Um, or, and, and are they driven by character? Do they reveal genuine transformation? Mm. Um, For us, I mean, a, a piece of screen, screenwriting advice that I love coming back to is um, the screenwriter John August says that a feature script, or especially a feature drama script, is about the moment a person's life changes forever. And so often what we're looking for when we identify a character through which we can explore an issue is we look for that moment. That moment becomes the act one turning point in terms of a classic three-act structure, but it really helps you say, okay, if that's the act one turning point, how much setup do we really need to get there? How much do we need to see of this person's life to establish their ordinary world before this thing collides with them, after which nothing was ever the same? That can be their whole life leading up to that point, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, and, and um, I mean... Often what you'll then find is if you are then um, telling, for example, a biopic, um, you will you want to get to that moment fairly quickly. I remember John always saying in the edits, we need to get to base camp and we've got to... Um, We've got to hurry up and get the story started, but you're clinging on to all this fantastic backstory that you really know is relevant. So often what we end up doing in those kinds of films is is splitting uh, the story into an A story and a B story. So you have your A story, which is the beginning, middle and end of the kind of unfolding main story, um, and then you can weave in these other critical backstory moments about your character that reveal their wound or reveal their motivation and help you understand um, more about them that helps the journey become more mm. emotional. Yeah. Um, and and it shows up in, in doco often because it is um, a great structure for a biopic. Yeah, and it's um, when we work, we work with comps, we focus on characterizations, but as well as the idea of structure and frame. So, for instance, a, a film like Forrest Gump uses this exact structure. Um, the reason why it's relevant for working on documentary is very often there's a present tense narrative, something like the John Caldor documentary that Samantha Lang documented, you're looking at a story in the very present tense. It's about John Caldor preparing for some 50th anniversary events around 50 years of the public art project that he initiated. What she also needed to include was the story of some of the highlights over those 50 years. So we have a present tense A story and a historical B story, which slowly catches up. 
looking at a film like Forrest Gump, if we can see how this works with a fictional character, we start with Forrest on the bench and we have a B story that slowly catches up to him and then we follow the A story through to the end of the film with everything we need to know about the character in place. And actually it was also the similar structure to what we were plotting with the the George Pell, car- the George Pell film. That's so. right, yeah, because in the case of the George Pell film, what we would have been able to shoot ourselves was his trial, was everything around that in the present moment that would have moved forward. That would have been the unknown. The known would have been the story told through archive and interviews of his life up until that point. And what that enables you to do is take the backstory, um, because often there's a lot of it, and it enables you to judiciously... Um, choose the moments and only the moments um, that really speak to character motivation and drive the story forward rather than cradle to grave. We've got to put every little bit in here. Um, and, and so it kind of enables you to be quite rigorous about what it's doing there and how it's driving the story forward. Mm. Um, so really practical tools, again, just to help us do this thing of telescoping in and out um, you know, we're always looking for collaborative tools to make this easier. Um, and one of the things, just on a really simple, practical level, I'm always telling people I'm, I'm helping with is get this program called Scrivener, um, which is an app you can get. Um, I don't know if it's on PCs, but it's on Macs. And what it enables me to do is um, it's a writing piece of writing software and it's not Final Draft, but it's, it's, um, it enables you to put your scene cards on the left-hand side of the screen and then on the right-hand side of the scene, uh, on the page you could screen, rather, you can click into that scene card and, and see all of the details. So you're not you're able to both zoom in and zoom out at the same time, so you always know where you are in the movie. So rather than having to scroll through a 98-page document to get the bit where you are and you lose sight of where you are, um, you can always just click back to... Um, to the scene cards and see where those scenes fit in the bigger picture of the film. We also then have those scene cards mirrored exactly on the wall of the edit suite. So if they change, someone gets up on the chair and pulls it off with blue tack and sticks up the thing and we reorder the, the, uh, um, the scene cards. And what this enables to do and why I think it's important is that it invites other people into the collaborative process. So often on a film like Sherpa when the um, John and Bridget were in the room and we had another consultant editor come in, we could all stand back and talk about the movie at a distance, at that really important 40,000-foot view, and everybody could be invited to enter that conversation. Um, so often I enter edit suites and there's no cards on the wall and I it makes it really hard to help um, and so to the directors in the room, I would encourage you to do that because I just think we all need all the help we can get. Um, and it is a collaborative medium and it enables... And, and, and when the producers weren't in the room, it would be Christian, the editor, and I, and the same thing on Mountain. And we would sit back and we would look at the film and it just enabled you to zoom back out again and see where you're at in the bigger picture of things rather than being down in the reeds editing some down some garden path that was never actually going to lead anywhere, um, which, as we know, burns edit time and, and creates stress. Mm. So if all these steps sound a bit gruelling, uh, too bad, because you need to do them at least four times. Yeah, I think on the Writers Guild website we looked up the, the definition mm. of writing in a documentary, and they say that the writing a documentary happens three times. 
We think it happens four times. Um, so really, just to talk through those moments, obviously development is is is, is getting the film financed and um, coming out the end of that, having a fantastic treatment means you, going into the shoot, you have a tool that you can give to your collaborators, so your cinematographers and, and other people that you're working with in the field. And I am always checking in with those people to make sure I haven't missed anything in an interview. I'll often turn around to the DP and say, do you reckon I covered it? And I'm really happy if someone says, I don't think you asked that bit about blah, blah, blah. So if everybody knows where you are in the story, um, I'm always driving to shoots and talking to the sound recordist about the bigger picture because it helps me get it clear and then they all become complicit in your vision um, and become attached to it and then become real collaborators. Um, And when there are moments like there were on Sherpa where the shit hit the fan and I had cinematographers all over the place and had no way of communicating with them, they actually got stuff that um, meant we had a movie. Um, So I think it's a really important tool um, to not just get finance but then take into the shoot and I mean the other part of the shoot and this is a super important part of writing is if you are doing interviews if you're not doing a totally observational film is the interviews um and I I I tend to use them a lot obviously not in a film like Mountain but um they become a really important storytelling device and if you don't ask the right if you don't know where you are in your story you don't know what questions to ask and then you're going to come back into the edit suite and you're not going to have that covered so um, I think it's a really useful tool there coming back into the edit one of the things that I think is something that we do a little bit differently and I'm a bit obsessed about um, I'm not a director that comes back and throws my rushes at an editor and says good luck with that and there are quite a lot of I'm always surprised at how many directors I hear do actually do that and I don't quite understand how it works because I do believe that yes editors are brilliant writers often many of them but I believe the responsibility of writing the film is and 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 fulfilling the vision is the director and so what what um and this is where producers can really step in um is enabling enough time when you get out of the shoot first of all to transcode and transcribe all your footage and then just to be able to watch it Um, and really think about it and I rewrite the treatment at that stage and sometimes you need to do that for financiers Um, we had to do that in the case of Sherpa and then with that treatment we had assembly editors working like the clappers to put that in some kind of rough shape while I was then rewriting the actual uh, edit script like actually grabbing actual interview bits actual shots and just putting together very rough, but uh, an edit script which told the story and expressed the vision of the new treatment. And what that means is that then you, when we entered the edit with the actual editor, we had probably like a two-hour, very, very rough assembly-ish-like thing um, that enabled him to now bring fresh eyes and then interrogate me on every single one of those scenes. And that's where the edit really began and that's where the writing began in the edit um and and I think we're just going to break out from the edit because it's it's obviously in documentary it really is the screenwriting stage this is where the rubber hits the road this is where the real writing begins Mm. um yeah in, in a sense everything you've thought about your documentary is hypothetical up until this point up until actually see how it's working in the edit bay how all the ingredients actually come together yeah, um, 
I think, um, yeah, you need to challenge yourself to confirm that you have everything you need. And mm. that's why writing the treatment and writing the edit script often will really throw up, shit, I thought I got that. Mm. And often we'll be working with um, directors who can talk a lot about that and you say, yeah, that's great, but did you actually get it? Mm. Have you actually got it? Um, and oftentimes, and it's hard, like we all know how hard it is, but sometimes they haven't got it. Um, and so what that then enables is a producer to go, well, actually, or do we need it? Or can we go in another direction? If we don't need it, fine. If we do, shit, we better go and organise that pickup shoot mm. um, because otherwise you won't have a film and you have to have these things all moving concurrently and, you know, and this can take many different forms. Or is there another way to solve the problem? Is Do we just whack up a card, which sometimes is really useful? Or can we do a little audio interview Um and do some audio pickups that um, we used as a really that was a super useful device for us on on Sherpa just to bridge some little gaps in understanding and and assumed knowledge. Um, uh, we've talked about my writing process. Yeah, common mm. pitfalls, mm. Um, big time, and I fall into this trap all of the time. And I think it's kind of impossible not to because mm. you have to become an expert, but there's too much assumed knowledge. Um, and oftentimes, I think Martha was a great example on that. Um, Selena was such a – she really listened. She was such a fantastic person to work with. Um, and and really at the end, um, the final kind of screenings were the only problems that remained were just that she was so close to it that she knew things about this world and about this character that um, she and the producers at that point just knew so well that they didn't realise the rest of us didn't know it. So – that's when fresh eyes can be so useful to go, well, you might think that, but sorry, what what does that actually mean? Mm. Um, and so sometimes just doing a little audio interview with one of your main uh, interview subjects or characters that can just bridge that gap of understanding. Otherwise your audience will become really irritated and they'll become confused and you don't, and that will interrupt their emotional experience of the film, which is what you're trying to avoid. Mm. Um the the other sort of area assume you know besides assumed knowledge that we often would run into here is um, becoming too attached to particular characters or shots or sequences. Uh, very often there'll be something in the edit that is just a bit confusing or, or or a bit sort of unusual or runs on too long, and you ask about it, and there's some incredible story around how that shot was taken or uh, how such and such laughed when the shot finished, and everyone involved is very attached to it, but it's got to go. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's a, a good example of this from Sherpa that from the very beginning, John Smithson kept threatening to, he was waving, I think you call it waving the axe over this one beautiful female character's neck. And, um, and it was to say he wasn't sure that she really helped advance the story. Mm. And I clung on for dear life all the way through up to probably fine cut. And it was in the process of, uh, these little test screenings that I'll talk a little bit more about um, where we would um, show the film to um, what we call punters. So these are different to your broadcaster or investor screenings. Um, we we would screen the film um, at, the, at the really pointy end of things to a bunch of what my editor would call punters. And very specifically, we didn't want filmmakers in the room. Um, we want people who didn't know who I was. I could have been the edit assistant for all they knew. They didn't even know my name. And I would just sit there and observe and, and we would screen the film and then we would ask a really specific set of questions. It wasn't like, oh, so any feedback. It was, 
Where are you bored? Where are you confused? Did you feel emotional? Um, did you like this character? Did you not like this character? And out of that process, in the case of Sherpa, everyone really seemed to like this character just because she's beautiful and likable. But what we really understood, and if you if you kind of really listen properly to the feedback, well, she wasn't actually contributing to the story. And so it, finally I acknowledged that at least I would try. And so we took Yangji out of the story and it was amazing. And suddenly the, the story elevated and suddenly the essence of the story really came to the surface um, and that was heartbreaking. On one level we managed to actually find a, a home for her in Mountain, which was great, and she also lived as this standalone little piece online as well. But in the end, you know, you are responsible to, to making the best movie possible and unfortunately that that meant losing this character. So that's a, an example from my my um, filmmaking that, you know, where those test screenings can really make all the difference. Um, and sometimes little details of um, little things that where people were confused and it was getting in the way of their enjoyment of the story. They kept saying, well, why don't you tell us how much the Sherpas get paid, for example? And it was actually in that process we're thinking, well, it's in the film, they're just not listening. Mm. And the editor was able to have the the distance and the lack of ego to realise that it was something else that we were doing that was confusing and we sorted out those problems, came back again and and those those screenings are brutal and I you know, I probably cried every night when I went home and they were really hard. But I would rather get that feedback then than read it in a review in the newspaper. Um and so you have to be brave. Um, <laughs> you have to really brace yourself. So just to do a bit of a recap, we might try to capture two things here. The first one is to maybe um, clarify a little bit, where does the writing live at each step in the process? And the second one would be, what specific advantages has this process brought us at each of these steps? Yeah, you might need to help me a bit there. But, um, I mean, I think... Um, just to speak about pure writing, because this is a session about writing, um, you know, we have numerous people that actually help us write along the way. I, I'm a good bigger picture thinker and I will write my own treatments, but most of the time I get somebody else to do a pass on them. Um, and, and so that's at the development stage. So there's people involved in that process. And again, I just find people that are better writers than me or better, you know, thinkers or test the ideas on other people and we go through various stages. You don't just bash it out and send it off. It's There's a rigour and a process mm. to that. Um, and all of the answers to the questions that we asked ourselves are encoded in that treatment at that stage. Yeah, and I think these are things that, that you know, people who are financiers, they are um, these are the questions that they are asking. Mm. Um, and so if you ask them of yourselves, you're going to wind up with a better and clearer treatment. And most of all, you might end up um, saving yourself two years of your life because you might realise that actually there isn't a feature doc here or there isn't actually a film here because if you don't have good answers to all those questions, maybe there isn't a story there. And I'd rather discover that then <laughs> than dedicating two years of my life um, or whatever it is. Hmm. Um, so moving into the shoot, where does the, the writing then begin to live? Yeah, I mean, I touched on this a little bit earlier. Partly it is, um, depending on what kind of movie you're making, so if you're making a totally observational film, it's a different process. If you're making a, you know, somewhere in between observational and, 
interviews. I, you know, like I said earlier, I do use interviews a lot, um, and I spend a huge amount of time preparing those interviews. Um, and I, because I find them a really useful storytelling device. And most of all, I try not to actually be on that shot um, in the final edit, but it. it gives you a framework for your narrative and and the character and their journey and so I'm always making sure that I'm interviewing characters you know pre and post ordeal for example um and um I mean there's a whole lot of tricks to that and that's a whole other session about the art of interview but um preparation is key writing the interview is key structuring the interview is key and and then putting that piece of paper down and not looking at it Mm. and then just listening um, and responding to the answer rather than looking down at your next question because that's a surefire way to not get a good interview and not build trust. Um, but that's that's a whole other session. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of something um, great you often say, which is at sort of the stage of shooting, it's not about being rigid. It's actually about covering your bases. It's almost like you think of yourself as a drama director capturing a dialogue and your scenes. So having a clear plan means you can get that and then pivot if you need to or respond to what's unfolding. Yeah. And and ideally you'll go into the shoot and, um, you know, kind of with a shot list and, and, and so the interviews are part of it, shot list is another. At least do your best to come back with the, the actual treatment because, um, you know, it's like a checklist um, because otherwise you come back into the edit and if you're lazy in the shoot, you, you know, you're going to actually pay for it mm. when you are in the edit. Um, and then the last two, so moving from the shoot, uh, the sort of process you described earlier, re-scripting and assembly. So this is literally taking the footage that you have, the interviews that you've gotten, sifting through the transcripts and figuring out which lines will speak to each of those moments that you've sort of imagined will fall into that structure. Yep. And then in the edit, really, and we did go into a little bit of detail there, but in the edit, really, what I think about as writing then, when you're in the edit, I mean, it is obviously the process of writing the edit script and putting the bits and pieces in the right order, but I just visualise a timeline because for me, writing at that point is which bits go where. It's where to put them. Um, And your dialogue is obviously your interviews or whatever sound you manage to capture in the field, and it's actually just finding places, you know, where everything sits on the timeline um, and then obviously bringing your artistry to it and the visual style and the music and all of that kind of thing. But that's, um, for me, writing in the edit is where things sit um, in that timeline. Yeah, brilliant. We're sort of coming to the end, so we might just wrap up with a few things so we can take a question or two. Yeah, feel free to jump in. at If anyone has any um, questions at this point, just raise your hand. But um, I would say this is our process. Everyone's got their own process. Um, I think it's um, the actual process of writing. I remember the, the first couple of docos I made. I mean, it, it really hurts your brain. It's a very, very difficult process and it's difficult at every single one of those stages and it's exhausting but it does get easier the more you do it it is a muscle that can kind of be exercised and um and so persist um persist um leave your ego at the door is another thing I would say um you know be open to other ideas winning out over yours 
because oftentimes the best idea, you never know where it's going to come from. Um, Richard Tongetti always used to say a mountain, may the best idea win. And and it's true. Um, um, and, and ultimately the importance um, of rigour. You know, the reason you go through this process is that if you're not rigorous in development, you won't get finance. If you're not rigorous in the shoot, you won't capture what you need to make the film you want to make. Um, and your film will go off the rails there. If you aren't rigorous during the edit, um, your mo- movie won't go from good to great. I mean, that's the other thing I would say about the edits and, and in all edits, most particularly in feature docs, I think, is that if you do the right amount of rigour at the right part of this process, that's when movies go from good to great. And this is where producers can really be supportive and... Um, I know there was a point where if we'd finished the edit on Sherpa exactly where it should have finished, it would have been an okay movie, but then it went to a different level because we had these extra few weeks of deep rigour um, and it was very painful, but it was but it was worth it. Um, also, it will save you money. It will save you blowing out um, in the edit. Um, uh, and if you do end up extending your shoot or your edit, it will be for very good reasons and hopefully that will be coming out of contingency. Um, and in the end, I think probably the last message is to say we don't make movies for ourselves um, to watch. We're given um, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and trusted to deliver on this vision, but we make them for an audience. And I just I do believe that if you can be responsible with this, you know, A, you, you're going to make a better film for an audience, but it's also a responsibility that we have to the people that have invested in us and the vision, um, um, and that means funding bodies, investment, you know, but also our characters, the people that are giving us their time to be in our movies, and we owe that to, to all of them. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so, very much yeah. for coming out, everyone. <laughs> Were there any questions that anyone uh, wanted to ask of, of Jen and I? Or are you all just keen to go and have a drink? <laughs> I think it might be. Oh, we do. We have oh. one here. Uh, just one question. Um, just about transcribing your interviews. Um, so just about transcribing your interviews um, after you shoot them and stuff and keeping that all on file and sort of easy to draw down when you're looking for something. Do you have any tips on your process for that? Uh, pay um, other people to do it for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but do it. You just can't. Um, when I first started, I, I was on a program called Race. It was the third iteration of Race Around the World, and we had to hand transcribe all our own interviews. And in fact, even if you do have to do it yourself, you ha- I cannot make a film without writing transcripts. So it's just a mm. completely crucial part of the process. So there are lots of fantastic <laughs> online fancy ways of doing it now quickly and cheaply but you need transcripts mm. where you can upload an audio file and it'll kind of come back down as a text file often there's a few little janky errors and things in there but it's close enough that you can fill in fill in the gaps hi thank you um just a question around when an editor may become a scriptwriter. Hmm. um do you mean to say that um should you give an editor a credit or yeah actually um and and when in the process of doing a lot of editing and um changing the script and moving the script around and restructuring from what the director might have come in with before um does the editor step into the writing role 
I mean, I think editors are writers in the edit because in the films are written in the edit in documentary. So, and I've spoken to editors about this a couple of times, in fact, offered editors writing credits and they've said, no, it's okay, it's inherent in the job title. Um, um, look, I think some editors, like I said earlier, are just dumped with a bunch of rushes and write film in some cases. I don't think that's fair or appropriate and I think if they are asked to do that, then they should get a writing credit. Um, I don't ever ask my editors to do that, but they truly are writers and collaborators. So it's just that fine line between owning the vision of your film as a director. Um, um, but, yeah, if you're not owning it, and um, I've definitely worked on projects where I feel like the director has not stepped up enough and and the, the editor really has saved the film. Um, but um, it's a really fine line, yeah. And if you have a great relationship with your editor, then you're just all in it together and running in the same direction because that's what you want. Um, and you want that with your producers as well. You want to all be you don't want to be hiding things from each other and creating yeah. silos and power battles. You just want to all be harnessing all that energy and be running it in the same direction. We have time for one more maybe? Any takers? Be careful how I phrase this. Uh, having difficulty finding comps for uh, an essayistic art stock <laughs> where mm. there's uh, probably four present characters with a historical timeline running through the centre. I've been having conversations with sales agents where no one can actually find a decent comp um, and we can't cite anything um, where it's been done effectively. Um, so thank you for your advice about going back to drama films. But um, just uh, any advice around um, sort of characters of equal weight if you've got between, say, four and six people telling a bigger story um, just because the room was silent. I thought yeah. I'd get, be a peek no, no, and get my course. question in. Thanks. Yeah, no, uh, no thank you. Um, I mean, in, with that kind, of, that kind of question, let's say if I was just trying to consult on, on this project and help you out, I would start free associating around just genre films with large casts. So it's not something like a heist film. I might think about whether there's something about the stories of your four characters that are united around one of the characters. Is there one character whose vision somehow provokes or interacts with the other three? You're nodding. Is that a yes? Okay. Well, there you go. So I would immediately, I would immediately start looking at something like Ocean's Eleven. You look at the primary journey that Danny Ocean is on. Uh, <laughs> and then you look at the way that he pulls in all these other guys for one last job. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Okay, but the, I don't know if you've seen Style Sandwich, and I don't know your project. Yeah, because that is an example of you've got all these artists, but you've got this. What is the thread? You still still need a thread that binds them all together. And in that movie, it was John Caldor. Um, he was the reason that they were all there doing this amazing stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. So very often there is a, a su sort of surprising way into it, or you can think about there are four characters that we're following, but it is one in a sense the instigator, the one who we can see from the very beginning, middle, and end, who carries us through, and then the other three are sort of caught up mainly in the second act and are responding to the vision of one character in some way. Great. Does anyone else have any comp? Because he's really good at it. I I'm not good at it at all. I always have to ask Joseph. But if anyone else has any, they want to throw at Joseph. <laughs> Okay, thank you all very much for coming. Thank you.